I want to invite you to take a seat if you're in the room at home or watching uh, at our our Webster campus. My name is Daniel. If I haven't had the opportunity to meet you, uh, I get the privilege of leading our kids ministry uh, across all of our locations here at Northridge. Uh, And today I want to give a huge shout out to uh, my wife because this week uh, we'll celebrate our third wedding anniversary. She's put up with me for three whole years. Thank you. We should be giving her a round of applause, not me in this moment. So I'm going to take that and pass it to her. Uh, And we are the parents to Wells, who will be one years old this August. And we also get the amazing privilege to be godparents to two awesome kids who live in Arkansas. We're originally from there. We lived there our whole lives until moving to Rochester uh, last year. Uh, And their names are Coy and Journey. uh, And um, they're incredible. Uh, And when we lived in Arkansas, it wasn't a weird thing for us to spend a lot of time with them um, and hang out with us, or they stay the night at Uncle Daniel and Aunt Rena's house. And one day before Journey entered the world, uh, I went and surprised Coy at preschool and picked him up and uh, wasn't a surprise to his parents though, okay? Like we checked with them first, Uh, but checked him out early uh, and because you got to be a cool kid and leave school early and let everybody know you're doing it uh, so they can uh, be jealous, right? Uh, and so I checked Koi out. He, he got in the, uh, the car. We, he got in his car seat and we're heading to our, the town Reed and I lived in. And uh, it was about an hour's drive away. And the whole ride there, I'm talking to him like, hey, Koi, what do you want to do? Ice cream? Mom and dad aren't here. Everything's on the table, right? And so, uh, but anyways, so we're driving. I knew exactly what he was going to say because it's what he wanted to do every time he spent the night with us, which was go uh, to uh, the playground, which was at the lake that we lived beside a small lake. Uh, and there were playgrounds all the way around the lake, about six of them that were themed out in different ways. Like one of them was a fort, another one was a castle. You get the point. Um, and he's like, I want to go to the playground. I want to go to the lake. And we're like, okay, which one do you want to go to? He's like, I want to go to the fort. So we go to the fort. Uh, so we, we get to the fort and we're playing, we're having fun, we're swinging, we're jumping, we're, we're doing all these things. And um, and he and I, he's, and he doesn't take him long, about 10 to 15 minutes where he's like, all right, now I want to go to the castle. And cause his plan is he, we're going to hit all of them along the way, uh, which I knew that was the case. Uh, it was just he and I, so we were having a great time. Uh, and he looks across the lake, he sees the castle. He's like, I want to go to the castle. So I'm like, all right, let's go to the castle. And being guys, we were, I, I kind of like got down with him like, all right, do you want to go on a journey uh, to the castle? He's like, yeah. And so, so instead of like getting in the car, driving around the lake, we decide to walk. And uh, it was about a little less than a mile. So it wasn't like a huge endeavor. Uh, but so we walk, we're going on this adventure together and uh, we're doing all this stuff and we don't walk on the path because that would be lame. We, you know, we forge our own trail in the woods. And so we're doing all this stuff and we're running, we're jumping over fallen trees. We're having a great time. And right before I get the words, be care, out of my mouth, uh, he falls. Uh, So he like wipes out. He's a little clumsy. And I'm like, hey, Coy, be careful. And he's like, I got this, I got this. So he brushed himself off and he's back at it running. Uh, And it doesn't take long till he falls for the second time. And, uh, and I, I say, all right, Coy, uh, why, why don't you hold my hand? And being a very independent uh, young man, he, he, he said, all right, listen, uh, I'm going to hold your hand, but you don't hold my hand. 
Spot on. I knew exactly what he was talking about. He's independent, so I'm like, you got it, buddy. So I stand beside him, put my hand out, open hand like this. His little hand grabs my two fingers like such, and we're on a journey. Me seeking to honor his wishes, I am not holding on at all to his hand. And we're running through the woods. We're doing it again. And it doesn't take long. You guys guessed it. What happened the third time? He falls for the third time. And you're thinking, you're heartless. No, I just honored his wishes. So um, in light of that, I look down at him. He looks up at me and he goes, okay, now this time, why don't you hold my hand? <laughs> like, yeah. Haven't we all felt like coy before in our lives though? Like we're going about, we think we got everything under wraps and we're just falling. We're falling and we're falling and we're falling. And you're just like, man, I wish, why can't somebody just hold my hand? And this morning, what I want to walk us through together is we're going to be in the New Testament book of Jude. Uh, and I'm going to show you, if you're a follower of Christ, that not only do you desire someone holding your hand, but you actually have someone holding your hand. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, I'm going to show you there's an invitation for you to invite someone to be holding your hand. So if you would turn there with me, if you got a physical copy of God's Word, go all the way back, make a left. Uh, Jude actually is in the Bible. It's a little bitty book. Uh, if you have a digital copy, scroll all the way down the bottom or just pull out your Northridge notes. As you're turning there, you may be asking the question, uh, okay, who is Jude? I wasn't sure if this was actually in the Bible or not. I'm not making this up. It is Jude tells us pretty early on in his letter that he's the half-brother of James, which means he's also the half-brother of Jesus. And uh, he's writing to a group of Jesus followers. And by context in this letter, we can see that he's writing for a very specific purpose. And the purpose of him writing this letter is that there are some false teachers who've risen up in the community of faith that he's a part of, and they're teaching people to live what I'm calling false lives. In, in essence, what he's saying is that following Jesus, these false teachers were saying following Jesus gives a person a license to sin um, in sense of like, you're good, you're good for heaven one day, so go out and live however you wish. But Another New Testament writer comes very strongly against this thought, and his name is Paul. And he says in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, he says this, Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. So Jude is writing for a very specific purpose to come and agree with Paul that these false teachers are teaching lies, that it's not okay to live a false life. And also, these false teachers were teaching another thing. They were actually denying the true identity of Jesus. So Jude writes his thesis statement, the whole point he's writing this letter, in verse 3, which he says this small phrase, contend for or fight for the faith. Your translation of the Bible may say one of those two ways. Because the whole point, he's like, hey, the faith that Jesus, my half-brother, our Lord and Savior, came to live on this earth, die for, rose back from the dead for, fight for that faith, the true faith, the 100% gospel. Fight for that. Contend for that. And man, the sports fanatic in me, that feels like a locker room speech where I'm like, yes, come on. Like, let's get out there and fight and win. Yeah. But it doesn't take me long to get from the word to look at the world and get discouraged. Because it seems like there's not a lot of winning going on if you're a follower of Jesus. Like, I look out in the world and I, with people that are, I'm close in with relationship or people that are far from me in relationship, and I just see, like, it looks like the effects of sin are doing more winning than Christians or followers of Jesus or the gospel is winning. And it makes me feel like, God, 
where are you? If we're supposed to be contending, if we're supposed to be fighting, and man, I am, where's the winning? Where's it happening at? And if I go to the word, to the world, and then shift my eyes to myself, I look within me and I get even more discouraged because I see the darkness that exists in me. I see the sin in my own life and it makes me ask this question of myself and hopefully you'll ask this question too, is how in the world am I supposed to push back the darkness out there if I struggle to get rid of the darkness in here? How in the world am I supposed to contend for the faith when it seems like I struggle in my own life to be faithful to Jesus so much of the time? So the question in this book of Jude, with us zeroing in on these last two verses of of his book, I want to ask this question. Who is on guard of you? Who is on guard of me? Who is guarding us from living out this false lives that these false teachers that Jude was coming against? Who is guarding us from following in their footsteps, from living false lives, from living in sin that will ultimately lead us down a pathway that we won't like once we get there, that will lead us to destruction? And this is what Jude says. If you have it there, verse 24 of Jude, it says this, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. The answer to my question I just proposed to you, who's on guard of you, is found in my title. It is this, God is on guard. Guard. God is the one guarding us. God is the one holding our hand. And I want to show you how these truths are found in these two verses with Jude beginning his letter and ending his letter with the same kind of idea that followers of Jesus are in relationship and God is at work. And this is how Jude says this, verse 24. Let's look at it again. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling. From this first phrase in this verse 24, we we see what God's action is going to be. God guards followers of Jesus to the end. That God is the one who will finish the work he has started. That the work that God starts in believers, the work of salvation, is secure in a person when God calls that person and that person truly surrenders their life to him as the only way uh, to heaven to be the forgiver of their sins and leaders of their life. But the thing that I shared is, I'm abundantly aware, even though I am a follower of Jesus, that I have sin in me. So how am I going to be guarded from this stumbling? Because stumbling in my mind are those little hiccups along the way, right? As I'm walking with God, it's that little sin or those big sins maybe that you abundantly remember in your mind that one night that you made that one mistake and it just sticks out and it's glaring in your mind. Or maybe it's those little sins of pride, greed, and jealousy. How am I supposed to be guarded from stumbling? Because I stumble a lot. And this phrase in Jude is the only time that it's used in the New Testament. And it's a word picture that doesn't mean like tripping on a path. It actually means falling to your utter destruction. So imagine this in your mind. You're watching the Discovery Channel or uh, National Geographic, whatever the case may be, and you're watching this like mountainous scene with this jagged cliff, and there's some kind of animal that is home to this area of the world, maybe like a mountain goat or 
fill in the blank with however creative you are with animals that are on the side of a cliff. And they're really good they're at navigating that jagged terrain. But what if they stumble? They don't show you that on the Discovery Channel because that would be a very painful like 20 seconds of them literally tumbling to their death. If they stumbled, they would be utterly destroyed because that cliff, there's no, oh, I sk- skinned my knee. It's like, they gone, all right? And this is the word picture that Jude is saying. It's not like I tripped over a pebble. It's like you're falling to your utter destruction. And Jude is reminding us, encouraging us that we serve a God who is more than able to keep us from falling, stumbling to our utter destruction, that he's a promise keeper and he will make sure not that true believers never sin again, that they will be sinless on this earth, but rather that they will not abandon the faith once and for all. And if we're being honest, stumbling in our lives, what probably came to the front of our mind was that one sin we did that one time. But most of the time, stumbling for us looks like small choices, small compromises, that when they come together, they lead us down a path that when we get there, we will not enjoy. It's a final destination we won't like. And Jude reminds us that God is good enough. He is able enough. He is great enough to keep us eternally. And Jesus, in fact, while he was on this earth, the uh, New Testament writer John reminds us of a story where Jesus teaches this exact principle. In John chapter 11, we find a story. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to tell you it, but you could be awesome if you read it this week. We find three people who love Jesus dearly, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And they're actually all siblings. And Mary and Martha write this letter to Jesus because Lazarus, their brother, is very sick. And they want Jesus to come and heal him. They know he is able to do this thing they are asking him to do. And they got their faith, and they're ready. They're like, Jesus, come quick. The one you love is sick. But when Jesus gets this letter, whether it's by word of mouth of a runner or if it's by a piece of paper that's handed to him, he just stays where he's at for several days. He's just hanging out. And then he finally makes the decision, take him and his disciples to go to find Mary, Martha, Lazarus, And when they show up, Lazarus don't have the sniffles. He's dead. They're at his funeral. They walk up to the funeral of Lazarus. And one of the sisters that come out of the house, the other one stays inside because she's probably just bitter and upset of how Jesus has responded in this moment. And the sister walks up to Jesus and says, Jesus, where were you? Didn't you get the word that the one you love is sick? If you would have showed up on time, you could have done something. And Jesus replies to her with this, verse 25 of John 11. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me, you should catch that? Whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? I believe in John chapter 11, the issue that we see with these sisters is not that they weren't looking at Jesus. It's that they were looking at Jesus and still not seeing Jesus. What if the story would have went like this? When they ran out of the hospital, hey, Jesus, I'm so excited you're here. Lazarus died, but I know if you're willing, you can bring him back. But that's not what our Bible reads. Our Bible reads that they looked at Jesus and said, bro, what happened? Where was you? Like, you didn't show up. Come on, like, it's, it's like, what in the world were you doing? But the reality is they were looking at the one who was the author of life and death itself, holding all power to do whatever it is he wills. And they said, where were you? 
not full of faith. They were looking at him and still not seeing him, which begs the question for me in my life, how often do I do this? How often when life's struggles or things don't go the way I think they should, do I go to Jesus and still fix my eyes on my own power, my own strength, my own wisdom, and I don't actually depend on him? When things are going wrong, I too easily forget I serve a God who is more than able, that will follow through on every promise he's made. Jude has told us the what. God will keep us. He will guard us. That's what he's going to do. But the question I still have to ask is, how is he going to do it? In other words, when I get to heaven one day, will I stand before Jesus with riddled with guilt and shame because I know as I walked on this earth, I wasn't perfect. Even though he saved me, even though he did these things, will I stand before him in heaven and be filled with guilt of all the things I could have or should have or should not or could not have done? And if I want, if that is the reality, I'm not super excited, if I'm being honest. But Jude says that's not what's going to happen. He says this, verse 24, the latter half, and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. Did you hear that? Before he's going to present you before his glorious presence without fault. Well, how is that possible? How is God going to do this thing? Those God's guards will be faultless. That's the truth from that verse. For those who've placed their faith in Jesus, one day they'll stand before God without any faults, saying this, God is going to wash us, wash us of every sin, from the guilt, from the shame, and from the penalty itself. Not just from that one big sin you did that one night, but from all the greed, all the gluttony, all the pride, all the lack of humility, all the lack of thankfulness, all the things that you covet from your neighbor that you want that you don't got yet, all the things that you have, and I'm just listing the things for me, um, all those sins that you think are little in God's eyes, all the lies that are not so big of a deal. God wants to wash you. He wants to wash me from those sins, not just from the big things you did that one time, but from the sins that you repetitively go back to that you don't think are a big deal. One thought leader on this verse says it this way, God will make us without fault like this. First, God will wash us of sin until there's not a spot of sin left. For the master of sin, he will be as one of the whitest and purest of God's angels. The eye of God's justice will look and God will say, no spot of sin remains in you. Other writers of scripture call it this, that our life is now hidden in Christ. It's your new identity. Every part of your being, every part of my being is wrapped up in Jesus. Jesus overtakes our sin. It's paid for past, present, future sins, settled in Jesus' name. That's why Jude, when he's writing to this group of Jesus followers, in verse one, he gives them three things that they're marked by. They're, marked, they're called by God, loved in God, kept for Jesus Christ. This is what he says, verse one of Jude. To those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. The original language flips these phrases. They actually do in this order. They talk about kept. It means to be watched over, taken care of, guarded, hence the title. Love, next one, to be outwardly shown a love that proves itself. 
God proved his love for you and I when he sent his son to live the life you couldn't live, die the death you deserve. He's keeping you. He's guarding you. He is loving you. And then the last one, called. It means to beckon, like mama ringing the dinner bell. That's probably a southern thing, but I'm going to um, go with it, all right? He's beckoning you. He's keeping you. He's loving you. He's calling you for his glory. He has chosen you, and he has been watching over you since the beginning. When you were living in sin, wanting nothing to do with him, maybe you're living that way right now, he is guarding, watching over you, calling you, keeping you, and he wants to show you all of his mercy because he poured out all of his justice on his son so that I could experience his love and mercy. And then he set us apart, called us, us out of the darkness of sin that you once lived in or maybe are currently in to be a part of a different family, a new family. And that means church family, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're called, you're loved, and you're kept securely by none other than God himself. As a believer, your identity is no longer in anything other than who God declares you to be in him. And your relationship with Jesus, it's not a license to sin, It's fuel for your life. But so many of us, myself included, know these truths or hear these truths today, this morning, and still we can sit back and say, I don't feel very called. I don't feel very loved. I don't feel very kept. And I believe the reality of these doubts in my life and ultimately, most likely, in most of your lives come from three possible reasons I'm going to list them for you really quickly. Number one, a wrong understanding of who does the saving. It is God. It's not you. You can't earn God's love or forgiveness. He freely gives it to you through Jesus. If you think you had a part of your salvation, you're wrong. You and I were good at doing one thing, sinning. Remember the list I made? Greed, pride, lies, big and small. Not only just that one thing you did that one time, but every day, every time we covet, every time we have a lack of thankfulness, every time we have a lack of humility, every time we have seeds of pride, that's sin. We're really good at doing that. At least I know I am. And it isn't always the big sins, but also the small things that God wants to wash you of. He wants to rid them from your life. And he is guarding you through his love and mercy. He chose to make you alive. You didn't wake yourself up. You were dead. Go to a funeral. They're good at being one thing, dead. And you and I were dead. But God, but God breathed his life into our spiritual deadness and made us alive with him. Correct your understanding. Number two, maybe you have a doubt of God's faithfulness to actually keep his word. Maybe you have a doubt of God's faithfulness to keep his word word. The first part of that word faithfulness is the word faith. In, in the church and like followers of Jesus, we talk a lot about having big faith, doing big things for God. But Jesus actually says the smallest amount of faith placed in the right location is the game changer and can make big results. The point of faith is not the amount of it, but where you place it. First John 1 John 1.9 says this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. I don't know who's let you down in your life, but God is faithful. He will keep his word. And what does his word say that he is faithful to do? Forgive us, purify us from all our sins, from all our unrighteousness. But get this, he is faithful. 
He will follow through. He will not let you down. I don't care who else has. He will not. God will keep his word. And number three, maybe you have a presence of sin in your life. Maybe it's presence of sin in one's life. And allow me to bring some clarity. We all know we're all sinners. I've addressed that. That's the thing. But what I'm talking about here is willful and consistent sin. It's a sin that you know exactly what you're doing and you're still doing it anyways. Like you're maybe not even that broken or convicted over it. See 1 John 1, 9, one more time. This is what he says. If we confess. When we bring our brokenness into the light, God will always cover it. He will always forgive it. He will always atone for it. He will absorb it. He has taken on, Jesus has came to this earth, taken on all of God's justice so we could receive God's love and mercy. But if you keep it in the dark, one day God will bring it to the light. It may be when you're here on this earth or in the next, but he will bring it to the light. There are three possible reasons for your doubt, but the bottom line is this. When it comes to your salvation, if, he, if I can lose it, it's not eternal. If I can work my way out of it, it's ultimately dependent on me and not God. If I can lose it, my confidence, my comfort, or my hope, and that can be pulled uh, into uncertainty to where my final destination is, then my salvation, it's not eternal. But Jude says the opposite. My hope in these words where they would serve as two purposes— For the believer, you would have hope because you know and you would be encouraged. For the unbeliever that you do not follow Christ, maybe these words would serve as introspection for you, that you could ask the question, where is my hope ultimately found? Because Jude knows, he knew exactly where his was. Verse 25, to the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Jude dives into this verse, all the things that belong to God himself. And our right response is worship. We've learned what God is going to do. We learned how God's going to do it. He's going to make us faultless. And now our response, all should worship God now. Worship is simply living your life with respect and honor and obedience to the one who deserves it. And now what we know about salvation in the Christian life is it's not the finish line. Jude tells those who receive his letter that they do have responsibility. Verse 21 in Jude, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you into eternal life. And he echoes the words of Jesus from John 15, 9. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. Our reality to be human is to love. So it's not if we will love, but what we will love. And the truth for all of us is we become more like the thing we love. We become what we love. And when in all of our efforts, when we're trying to love God, it's not a bad thing. God is not sitting up in heaven. And I didn't spend the last 30 minutes of explaining to you that um, that God's got you so that you could go and live exactly how the false teachers were teaching in Jude, that you can go and live how you want. God's got me, right? Let's go live it up. But no, God and his grace is not opposed to your effort. He's not sitting up in heaven every time that you want to try to be with God and through his word or serving other people or in prayer, all these different things. He's not opposed to you trying. He's not being like, I wish they would just quit trying to love me. 
He's not doing any of those things. He's opposed to your earning. God's grace is not opposed to your effort. He's opposed to your earning. He's opposed to when you do those things after you've done them thinking, does God love me more now? After you spend time in God's word and with him, like, I bet God loves me more now. Or every time that you give a gift, a financial gift to the church or to a nonprofit, being like, I bet God loves me more now. He's opposed to that. He's not opposed to you uh, putting forth effort. He's opposed to you trying to earn his love because his grace, simple definition, undeserved favor. And I was reminded of all these things uh, by something that happened in my life. A few years ago, I was co-leading a mission trip to Anchorage, Alaska with a group of students. It was a few months after I um, landed my very first ever youth ministry job. Um, and we took a group about, there's total of about 30 of us to Anchorage, Alaska. We went in, in July. And if you know anything about Alaska in July, the sun never sets, like literally. That's not just like a picture, like, oh, it's so beautiful there. The sun never sets. No, it literally never sets. It's like goes up. Slightly goes down, comes back up. Uh, and that's what it was. And so all day long, from about 8 o'clock in the morning to about 6 o'clock at night, we were serving the community, uh, doing things for the church there that we were partnering with. Uh, and then in the afternoon, we did a soccer camp for little kids. And then we wrapped everything up, tied it up, and had dinner about 6 o'clock. And um, once we finished everything up and got everything tidied, uh, the students were like, let's go hiking. And, and Daniel's like, let's go to bed. Uh, but we went hiking. So we went hiking uh, every night. And one of the first nights there, we, we did a hike that's pretty popular in Anchorage called Flat Top. Uh, the, literally the top of the mountain is flat and you can see uh, the skyline of the city and the ocean. You can see a lot of really cool stuff. And um, while we were there, we, we do this hike and you get to the last about 60 yards of this hike and it's free rock climbing, which would have been fine if we would have had gear. But I was wearing Nike shorts and tennis shoes. That's not proper hiking gear, in case you didn't know. Now you do, you're welcome. Uh, and so we're, we're there, there's 30 of us and only about half the group makes the decision to journey up the last leg of this uh, hike. So we go up the top. I was in that, uh, that 15 or so, and we're at the top. We're taking selfies. We're living up. It's beautiful scenery. It's amazing. And we stayed up there about 10, 20 minutes or so, and I looked down the, down the little 60-yard leg, and uh, I noticed that our group has started the journey back to the vans. And so I looked at the top of the mountain. There were several people up there. I noticed there's uh, four of us left. And I said, okay, guys, let's make our way down so we can start heading back to the van. So it was me, uh, two junior guys, and one junior girl. And so I lead the way because I'm the, you know, the fearless leader. And so I'm like making my way down this mountain. And I get about 10 yards in this descent. And I start getting nervous because rocks are sliding out from underneath me. And like, it's not super stable. It was way easy going up, but going down was another thing. And we're 10 yards in, we're really quickly into this leg down, and I, I start listening, and all of a sudden I start hearing what sounds like someone hyperventilating. And I turn around to notice the girl that's with us locked up on the side of this mountain, and she is hyperventilating, and she's going, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't. And I'm like, no, I can't right now. Like, no, this is not happening. Because I see two things happening. Either one, I try to help you, you kick me off the side of the mountain, and I die. All right? So I think. Or two, you fall off, get hurt, and then I get fired. I just got my first paycheck, like real paycheck. I can't do this. And so we're up here and I like muster up my best dad coaching voice and I climb up beside her and I'm like, all right, listen, we can do this. You're gonna follow him. He's gonna lead us. Every step he takes, you take it. If he doesn't step there, don't step there. But you're following him and I'm right beside you all the way. We're not gonna let you fall. 
one step at a time, we got you. And she goes, I can't, I can't, I can't. And so we start making our way down and, he, and uh, the guy's leading us and we're taking a step. I'm just making sure I'm right there beside her and every step of the way, she's like, I can't, I can't. And I'm like, one more step, we got you. One more step, we got you. One more step. She says, I can't, I can't, I can't. And as I thought of that story, I thought of how much of my life I spend stuck on the side of the mountain when the Spirit of God is trying to edge me to take one more step. Not a jump off the side of the mountain. That's most of our lives. We don't live most of our lives taking this big jump. It's God saying, one more step, I got you. One more step, I got you. Asking us to take another step of obedience, another step of trust, another step of faith. One more step, and we're stuck. We're saying, I can't do that thing. I get angry too easily. I can't love my spouse because we have so much stress in our marriage and and with kids, and I can't do that. I can't love that person at work, not that neighbor, not that family member. I can't do it. And God, all along, he's nudging us. He's saying, one more step, I got you. Because I'm not asking you to do it in your power or your strength. I'm asking you to do it in my power. Because I've already paved the way. I'm leading in front of you. I'm behind you. In fact, I'm surrounding you in this thing. I've already got you. You're not going to fall. One more step. I got you. Church, family, we're at a crossroads now. Will we make the decision to be glued to the side of the mountain screaming, I can't, I can't, I can't. Or take one more step. One more step of obedience. Because God, through the power of his Holy Spirit, is empowering you. He's empowering me. He's got us. Will you climb the mountain? Let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you so much for doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. God, we thank you that Jesus did everything and more than is required. And by the power of your Holy Spirit, we can do the things you're asking us to do. That we're empowered by your Spirit. We're propelled forward by your Spirit. And we're held close by your love. That you look at each and every one of us and you say, called, loved, kept, securely by none other than you, than Jesus himself. God, I pray that we would be obedient people to your word and we would climb the mountain. Amen.